Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is a podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Bissell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, DVD, and Tubi. Tubi! I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who's made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently working on others. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's creative distribution initiative. This week, we welcome writer, director Kate Devaney on the show to talk about making her first feature film, how she got attached to the film, and how her career as a storyboard artist helped her get her first directing gig. Also, a big thank you to the Austin Film Festival for making this episode possible. After that, we play another round of the game and we read another itunes review but first Ulrich, how are you i have a feeling you have something you want to you want to say how oh, are you're you just you're just getting me right into it okay <laughs> yeah so liz announced a week or two ago that she is pregnant well i didn't announce on the show but i will say right now i'm pregnant but now you, you say whatever oh, you want to say you didn't announce on the show oh okay i'm pregnant <laughs> i thought you did <laughs> So my wife is also pregnant with our second ch- child. So it was like, basically, so we, I don't know if Liz told me first or if I told her or whatever. It was like, basically, as soon as I found out, like, she found out. Yeah, it's kind of funny that, like, <laughs> we're both going through the same exact process. And being very secretive. Yeah, about yeah, it. being secretive. Yeah. And then also courting feature films at the same time that we're like, you know, may or may, or may not direct before our child's children are born. If you look back it, on all our conversations, crazy. that's like all we talk about. We're like, how do we balance family and this movie that we want to do? Oh, my God. It's all crazy. Yeah. So uh, it's funny. It's like, you know, the drama of my movie, which is not very much drama. It's just the same thing that all movies go through. Like the, you know, will they, won't they? Like trying to get cast, trying to get yeah. funds, all that stuff is happening. But when I found out that, you know... I was going to be a father again, times two. You know, it kind of brought a lot more, you know, excitement and weight to the whole thing. So it's like, well, geez, like, this basically needs to happen when they want it to happen in order for me to, like, actually be able to direct it. My wife's very sweet. She keeps on giving me, like, a little bit more time. She's like, well, as long as you're back, you know, like, three weeks before the due date or two (laughs) weeks before the due date, you know, you no. Oh, like very, very sweet of her. And then she's like, but if, if it comes early, you have to just leave. You just have to go if it comes early. I was like, ah, Good. let's Good. just not, let's just not, let's, let's just, I, I don't want to get myself in a situation where I have to leave this movie because my child is being born. Like, I just want, you know, I'd almost rather be like, I'm not going to do it or we'll just do it later or something, you know, than like put that all out there. I have not told my team that my wife's pregnant, by the way. I don't they think know it really now. Matters. They know as of right this second. They know now. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter until we actually have a deal in hand, yeah. which we like don't really right now. Like we had a meeting last week. It went really well. Like they're reading the script now and like their finance team is looking over the details and the package. So I don't even really know what that means of like, how close that is to like 
you know, us getting a check or a promise of a check. It's not even a check. It's like with <laughs> these MGs, it's like, oh, uh, we won't give you money before you make the movie. But once you complete the money, we will give you this. This Once we, you complete the movie, we'll give you this money. So basically, like, I don't know if you probably know all about this, but like the way they're going to do it is we get the agreement. Then my executive producer will find the bridge financing, like the, the, or gap or whatever you call it. So people will like put the money up and then like once the movie's done, then they get their money back, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like, a, it's, so it's, it's like a film investment, but it's like a way more safe film investment because basically the only danger is if we don't finish the movie, which we will finish the movie for sure. Like we're going to finish the movie. Right. Unless something like catastrophic happens, you know? So yeah, I mean, yeah, it's exciting. It's fun. You know, I, I sort of been thinking, I, I think I told you off, off mic, uh, last week that like, you know, if some, for some reason this movie didn't happen right now, eh, oh, it's fine. No, it's okay. I wouldn't be so upset about that. Like take a lot, a little bit of stress off my life, you know, getting ready for my, for my second kid. It'll be like, you know, there's other movies to happen in the world and maybe it'll happen later. Like that would be, that would be cool. I mean, obviously it does happen. Like I'm going to be super stoked and like really excited to go off and make it and everything, but it's just a, uh, an extra complication on life that, um, I wouldn't be sad to not have. Mm. But I don't know. How do you feel about your project? Like, do you feel the same way? Or are you more like, no, like I really want it to happen before so I can like get in the can before like, you know, my second kid gets here? Well, I've had a few developments in that my plan is to shoot the opening sequence of my horror feature before birth. And the oh reason for that is the first 17 pages of my script with Amy have the main characters of the whole film, but they're 10 years younger. So mm. I think what we do is we cast two different ages to play one character. And then mm. I can kind of, I don't know what you'd call this. I'd kind of like, we would split principal photography into two and we do like a week long shoot with the 18 year old cast and just shoot that 15 page sequence. And then I'd have the baby and then we'd edit it and we'd use that to fundraise the rest of the mm. mo- money. And it's not a sample. It's not a sizzle. It's not a trailer. It's actually the first 15 minutes. So it's not like we have to match anything later. It is a self-contained shoot and edit process. So my plan is to do that, is to shoot a fraction of the film to kind of get us going. Because I just don't think, you know, I think your wife is due in July. July. Yeah, late July. Yeah. And I'm due in mid-August, but I'm probably going to have the baby in late July or early August. Like, I really genuinely think there's wow. a world where we have the babies around the same time. <laughs> and yeah. that just, to me, it's like, it's February. Like, it's just not enough time to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars on my own. Like, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. So I'm trying to bite off what I can chew. And then I had a conversation with my producer on another project today And it was so funny. He was like, well, if we shoot it this summer, when's the last day you could travel? Like if we push into mid-July, could we do it? And I was just like, (laughs) I don't think I'm allowed to fly in mid-July. Like I don't think physically that the doctor will allow me to be out of state. So there's all these biological variables that we all have to consider, right? Wow. Yeah, yeah, So I think that movie is being pushed to the winter, which is amazing. Because of you or independent of you? It's because of a few. It's I'm part of it, but I'm not the only reason. There's a few reasons. Like That's can cool. Yeah. So I think I don't think they're like, oh, we want to accommodate Liz. I think they're just like, oh, there are enough reasons. 
And so we'll push it. That's awesome. What a so perfect situation. Yeah, I'm knocking on wood, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll do. I think it's just, but I know what you're, I, I guess, I guess you have now the context of what's happening, but emotionally, I completely understand what you're saying. Like yeah. the burden of thinking about putting an entire movie together as you're preparing for such a massive life change is really, really scary. Yeah. I just think about like, you know, how easy life would be, right? Like if like I didn't have anything else to do, but my day, day job and then podcast and then going into, you know, having a second kid, it's like, oh, like my next few months will be glorious. I'll have weekends and <laughs> evenings and I can play with my daughter and we can enjoy the pregnancy. It'll be so exciting. And then like, but the other version's like, like, oh my God, there's so many things to do and got to take time off of work and make sure my boss job's okay with that. And, mm. you know, then they like, oh, and then I'm going to come back and then I have to take paternity leave again after that. It's like all these, you know, my, my team going to be okay with that. Like, it's all these just things that are like, you know, yeah. stressful to think about. But then like when you're like, oh, there's no movie to make. Oh, that's easy. Cool. <laughs> I can enjoy all I these play piano. Marvel movies that are coming out. I can play more piano. I can <laughs> maybe write a script. Oh, it's so great, you know? But uh, the other version's like stress level 5,000, you know? Um, yeah. Because I, because I, it feels like, I don't know. I mean, no matter what anyone says, like, I know they, they want to shoot in the spring, quote unquote, like, but mm-hmm. this movie would have to get like, greenlit like tomorrow in order for us to shoot like anytime even like april you know (laughs) like like it'd have to happen so quickly so like i kind of feel like you know this the rate that we're going like may or june seems so much more realistic for this movie to be shot you know and like we're talking about maybe shooting in arizona so it's like arizona in may or june sounds like a nightmare (laughs) you know so like I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it'll all be great. I'll love it. I mean, I'm not trying to, like, if my producing team is listening, like, I do not want out of this project. I'm, I'm in. I am 1,000% in. I'm just saying. They know like, that. This, my mental thought of process of, like, how difficult things will be, it's just sort of, I'm scaring myself. It probably won't be all that hard, but it, it's just going to be a lot of work, no matter what. It'll be a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what's going on with me. <laughs> a lot. A lot's happening. But it's all very exciting and uh, wonderful, and I'm... You know, really thrilled to be a parent times two. It's going to be, it's going to be great. I'm super excited. Aren't you, you must be, I don't know, your emotions must be way different than mine because, you know, yeah. being the man, I don't have to worry about, I'm not dealing with what you're dealing with. I don't know if you even want to go and try, try to explain how you're I mean, feeling. Well, I think it's just like for the first few months, because now I'm about 12 weeks, I was like physically unable to do certain things, right? And that's like, I couldn't like and I was saw myself drowning in the work I was getting like, you know, just the to do list piled up like I was falling behind Mm -hmm. on things for the podcast. And I'm still kind of catching up now. And I think it's a nice lesson where like you can't you're not in the control room. <laughs> like someone else yeah. is in the control room right now and you're just on the ride. So like, I'm hoping that the baby sticks. I really like this baby so far. Like big fan of the baby. Feel close to it, even though it's like a little <laughs> oh. like lime, like really kind of, I love, I love the little tyke and I feel very connected to them. But like, I have the weird fun experience of 
of just kind of monitoring the body and no, not knowing what's going to like I could miscarry at any moment. What it's what I'm not saying right. is like I think what I'm carrying that's slightly different is the superstition and the magical thinking of like who knows what's going to happen, you know, and yeah. not wanting to use too much confident language about having the baby. Man. But what I decided is, I don't know if this is too much information, but I had an ultrasound and I got to see the baby and the baby jumped when oh. the sensor, like, you know, touched, touched the uterus. And I was like, that's my baby. Like, I was like, I would do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like awesome. I jump like that. Like, that was like, I get scared like that. Like, I just fell in love with them. And so I decided that I was just going to be really loud about this pregnancy, no matter what. And so... It gave me some confidence. And then you deciding to announce your wife's pregnancy gave me some confidence. And so now we're just going to plan. We're just planning as if we're having think, a child. I think you got to do that, you know, especially when you're after 12 weeks. It's like it's all it's all in, you know, like anything can happen. Anything scary can happen at any time. That's like the vulnerability yeah. of becoming a parent, you know. But yeah, when all signs are pointing to yes, it's like it's got to go and like. I think with our first baby, with BB, we we kind of felt like we felt this way all the way up until she was born. (laughs) We were like, "Is this really going to happen? Like, are we actually going to have a beautiful baby?" And like, you know, sometimes I'll even say to my wife now, "I'm like, is she real? Like, is she actually here? Like, she's (laughs) so wonderful." It's like, you know. So I wonder if I'll have those thoughts with this one. And like, so far I don't. So so far I'm like, "Yep, they're coming." Nothing's stopping this baby from coming. I basically felt that way from when we found out my wife was pregnant. I was like, oh, they're coming. Oh, no, we're not getting out of this one. They're coming. They're going to be here. They're going to be here on the 27th or right around there. And they're coming. And my wife, I think, is still feeling the way that you are a little to like, is it real? Is it happening? Like, are they there? And, you know, I mean, I think that's just very natural. Yeah. But yeah. God, I had a question for you. Forgot it. Was it about babies? (laughs) Yeah, it was baby questions. It, oh, yes. It, did you find out if what the sex is yet or the, the no. gender or whatever you call I'm it? I'm doing days? all the genetic testing uh, a week from today or a week from tomorrow. So I get to find, as I told Eric yesterday, I get to find out all the disorders we have. Very excited mm. to find out all mm-hmm. the disorders. Mm-hmm. And then I'll find out the assigned um, the assigned sex. I It's weird, you know, like I believe... You know, I believe gender is a construct. I know biological sex is hard to ignore, but I think it's a girl. And so I I just have this feeling, but I guess I'll find out. Well, just so everyone knows, we're having a boy. Very exciting. Ah! I was convinced it was going to be a girl. I think Beth thought it was going to be a boy from day one. But uh, yeah, going to be fun. Boy and girl, one of each. American dream, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> yeah, it's very exciting. Just right off the into it, you know? But I, I, I kind of have been feeling this way a lot lately about filmmaking, you know, that's like we have our whole lives to make movies, but we only have one time in our lives where we can have children, you know? If you want. Yeah. If you if want. You want I feel like if we're coming off way pro baby right now. <laughs> I and I just wanted to like add some diplomacy to the conversation that we're yeah. going to go through I'm, hell I'm, for the next 18 years and everyone should pity us instead of celebrate us. That's how I feel. <laughs> right. But, but that but genuinely, yes, I agree. It's if you want to. I know what you're saying, and I appreciate. Well, it. I'm just saying that I'm not saying that you have right. Like, obviously, not having children is a great option too, depending on who you are. You know, whatever. I think I probably would have been happy without children, also. But this is because yeah. we, we we talked about it for a long time, like if we were going to do it or not, and like for a long time we thought we weren't. 
And then, you know, basically it was like one year. My wife was like, we're doing it. I was like, okay. That's what I did too. I turned to Sean and I was like, all right, this is now. This is what we're doing. Like I set the stage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's not for everyone, but I I think we're both really, really excited. And on on that note, don't forget to support us on Patreon. (laughs) It's... www.patreon.com slash MMIH podcast. Think of all the children's mouths you will feed by (laughs) donating to our Patreon. (laughs) Also, the ISA is the number one screenwriting resource for writers looking to break in or restart their screenwriting journeys. With a relaunch of the site and updated features, writers are launching careers faster than ever. Check out networkisa.org and join a community of like-minded writers. Without further delay... Here's our chat with Kate Devaney. All right, we're here with Kate Devaney. Kate, give us the elevator pitch for the Mad Hatter. Well, it's a group of college students, psych students, go to a mansion that has a rich history uh, to see if there's ghosts there, if there's spirits there, and if they can address some of their deepest, darkest feelings, fears, thoughts. I love it. How many days did you shoot? We shot 19 days total. And that included drone work as well as like underwater stuff that was separate from principal photography, which was like, uh, I think, se- 17, 18 days principal. And then we had that extra day for drone. So. And then what could you say about the rough budget, if anything? Well, so we ended up at around, from what I understand, full full in was about six. 50 or 650, 700,000. We did have to trim back. You know, we were, we were looking at a bit more money than that. And and for some of the underwater stuff, for example, we had like a big car accident and a big stunt that would have been a, a rig and a very expensive, timely thing to shoot. So just, I, I spent time rewriting some scenes to bring some of those numbers down. And so. How, how did the idea come about? How was it, or what was the origination? The origin. Yeah, so I this is mine's a very unique situation for a filmmaker's first film. I I am repped with Brillstein Entertainment Partners, and I was brought on as a writer. I was when I first got repped there, but with short films and and commercials and you know fashion videos and things, music videos that I had been directing and shooting. So it was an interest in directing, a heavy interest in directing, and but kind of coming in as a writer first and. What happened was my manager is Kaylee Marsh. So she ran, she ran the blood list for years. She started that, you know, a good decade ago. And I had been working a lot with Blumhouse. So I had this kind of genre connections and I was living that as a storyboard artist and writing these specs. And so I had written something that was horror and she and I clicked really well. I ended up meeting her through some of my Blumhouse connections. And so what happened as far as how it came to me, it was something that was brought to her and it was something that was brought to her for potentially another client of hers who unavailable or passed, you know, she in turn pitched me and so I got on the phone with the producers and we started talking and I read the script and I, I thought the idea was really interesting and there was a lot there. And it was a really unique situation where they had the location already locked down and we shot in uh, Florida, but they had this mansion like in July, they had to shoot in July. And so this was like April. And so it was run and gun. We had to do a rewrite and then, you know, prep and everything. Yeah, just a unique situation where I have a great manager, <laughs> right place, right time. And I think 
my extensive art directing background, storyboard background, writing background, you know, was all part of the pitch to, hey, let me direct this movie, you know? So, and I had a, I had a take, you know, I had a specific, you know, vision for it. And how long did you spend working on the film from like bring, being brought on at that point that you talked about to it being released? Well, it took a while. So we, we shot in 2019 and we wrapped the, just trying to remember everything clearly here. So July into the very beginning of August. And then we had a little bit of break in funding. So, you know, we had this production budget money available to us. And then the financier basically wanted to wait for, he had a couple other films that were in the process of getting released and finished as well. So he needed to finish that. That was a big part of it. And also just getting that last bit of money. So it was early the next year, 2020, before we had a cut. I think I, I was able to start editing at the very end of 2019, but then we did a screening early 2020, right before lockdown and then did a recut. And it was still like the next year before the film was released. So it was a while in post, you know, just, yeah, a lot of visual effects too. And, and that stuff, you know, doing it on a low budget and trying to really make it good and, and, and was was really tricky, but I really grateful. I had some incredible collaborators on on that, you know, front. I don't want to ask the next question. I have a different question than the one I'm supposed to ask. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you, I, and this may be because you're being interviewed and it's a podcast and, and there's kind of like time creates like a lack of formality. I don't know, like a like a coolness, a cool factor, right? It's like distance, your distance now. I think most people looking towards their first feature, it's like desperate to get that first feature, to get that first opportunity. But were you like that? Were you like knocking down all these doors or or did you have this career in art and storyboards and writing and this just fell into place and you thought, well, let's try it. Like what was the actual like energy level of the decision? So the spec that got me signed, the, the right as a feature spec was my homage to Silence of the Lambs, which is probably my favorite movie oh, so for a number good. of reasons. So but it was a it was a thriller horror, you know, kind of mashup and it was about a woman who worked in a newspaper and went out in the desert to find the serial killer. And you know, there's a lot of fun characters along the way. But so this is what I got signed on as a writer. But this was also something that my manager and I were working together to try and get made. So this was several years before Matt Hatter came along. And so I was pounding the pavement, like going to general meetings, you know, being considered as a writer. I ended up staffing in a mini room for a com- company, Bronze Studio, for a different horror project with like David Bruckner, who just did um, Hellraiser and you know, so I, I was doing writing stuff in between, but all the while, like lookbooks and, you know, for this other script called Belay. And, you know, unfortunately, it's nothing really ever came of that. But that was my low budget horror that I was going to direct that was going to be my first move. You know, that was it. So that's where so much of my energy was going. And then when my energy wasn't there, I was, of course, writing those next specs for your your reps so that they can push them out the door and get you hopefully more jobs, you know, in the writing front. So that was really the, the focus was writing new specs and then trying to get this guy. I made for, you know, a million if I could. I thought I could make the lie for a million. And I was very familiar with the Blumhouse way, the Jason Blum way of making, you know, under the tier one world. And so, you know, it was a script that wasn't really suited for what they were looking for when I wrote it and when they read me. But I just I just was like, okay, I think there's a way to do this. You know, I can do it. And I had art directed like $1 million movies and stuff. And I'm like, I've seen this work. You know, I, I, I know I can do this. So then, you know, I guess I'm just curious about like you're you're pushing towards your first feature film and then this Mad Hatter thing comes along and and takes that place. Like, did you are you like now going back to trying to get that your original first feature made or what's the process there? So I've kind of here's the thing with that particular story is I've kind of let it lie for a little bit because what actually ended up happening is 
I, the year Mad Hatter came along 2019, that was in April. I actually ended up pitching to Sam Raimi for his, for an anthology for Quibi, which doesn't exist anymore. But um, so I, I, and I got hired. So he bought it on the phone. So I ended up like, I ended up dude, that was March. And then I got this, this Mad Hatter script fell into my lap. And then I quickly wrote the, the Sam Raimi project so that I could leave and do Mad Hatter. And then when that was done and I came back, I had to go Vancouver and do the Raimi thing. So, you know, to answer your question, it's like, it's not that I have ever abandoned that first script. It's just that things started rolling and I had other stuff happening. And now I was in post and I needed to see that through and push that through on both of those projects, which were, which took up 2020. Um, and I also got, I also had pitched something in between there right before lockdown. So I actually got paid to write a script for Spyglass. And so I think to answer your question, it's just like life continues to go if you're getting paid to do st- other stuff. And like that one would still be great. I'd love to still tell that story, whether that's in, you know, I've, I've toyed around with like fiction podcast world because it's so, you know, attainable. It also is something that I think could maybe fit into more of like a, an episodic structure. It also kind of falls into true crime. And I think tr- trends have changed a little bit too. So that was like back in 2017 when that spec was circulating. And I think now that true crime is such a big deal and like actual true real events are are everywhere. I don't know that a fictionalized one is as easy as a sell. So it's kind of like, I, I'm very sort of receptive to, you know, how, how big is the push and can I get other stuff made and it still makes me happy, you know? So I, I haven't abandoned it. It's just, I haven't returned to it. So how do you get yourself in a position where you've made, I think whatever, IMDB is telling me this, you tell me what's right, but you've made one short and you made participate in 50 states of fright and perhaps there's other things that we're not aware of and the head of the blood list is pitching you like is it do you come in and is it was it that short was it your relationships i mean i know you had these relationships you built with the blumhouse people but still you hadn't made a feature yet so I, i it sounds like you really were in a position of strength and i'm just curious how you got to that point in that meeting with the producers of matt hatter in terms of how to how i pitched myself well act, yeah or yeah. just like you were saying that yeah that or they were the pitching case, yeah. you, that she was pitching you the script you know i know and i know then there's yeah. a whole process of getting the job but like how did you even how did you get to be seen as a candidate for the film yeah so well i'll back up and say like you know we all know as as filmmakers there's no one direct route like we've met people that come up as actors writers I have friends that came in through visual effects and then because they worked with certain people, they were able to get an opportunity on something that was visual effects oriented. And so for me, I recognize because I was storyboarding and I, I started to do, you know, I, I, like I made good friends with Cooper Samuelson, who's, who's at Blumhouse. He's the, the president, I believe, uh, Blumhouse. And, you know, Cooper was great. He would hire me for all kinds of stuff there. And and we got along really well. And he started introducing me to other people. So it's, I actually worked a lot with Akiva Goldsman. So I started working on like storyboarding, like G.I. Joe stuff and like, you know, bigger projects that were like Paramount and Hasbro Universe and stuff like that. And I think like bringing, bringing that knowledge, if you're talking about a movie, Mad Hatter, one of the things I recognize early is like, what is it genre? So I understand that. I, I really felt like I kind of like got boot camp, you know, at Blumhouse in terms of how to like, figure out genre and especially working with like Scott Derrickson on Sinister and working on the first Purge movie. I storyboarded those things and I was able to really kind of like understand how to function in the flow of the, these stories and the story momentum and how to place scares visually as well as story wise. And I think, you know, all of that knowledge, that accumulated knowledge, as well as just, you know, being confident and, and coming in with a, a point of view and saying like, 
I can handle a visual effects heavy movie because I've been doing this, you know, I, I know how to treat these things as a storyboard artist. I've had a lot of conversations. I've worked on Marvel movies. Like I understand how these things work at a bigger level and a smaller level. And I feel like I can come in on a number, you know, and, and, and do it. So I think, I think for me, it was just like understanding my strengths and playing to those. And, you know, I think you kind of have to be crazy to make a movie. I think like Scorsese says something like, if you knew how hard it was, it's like, you would never do it. And I think there's like a certain amount of chaos and, and craziness where I'm like, I'm going to do it. And then you're like, oh shit, is this going to work out? You know, but you just charge ahead. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's yeah, it's a combination of playing strengths and then just being brave enough to step into it. Just as an addendum to clarify my question, it's not that you weren't qualified. You're obviously very qualified. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, I, I struggle with confidence. So I like to know how other people just kind of tackle opportunities. That's where like, I was realizing like, oh Lord, I could have phrased <laughs> that question a little bit better. That's all. <laughs> well, I, I felt I felt confident in my storytelling as a writer. And so I felt like I could come in and say, okay, the script is, oh, it needs to be trimmed because we're never going to make the days. Like, this is too long. Let's talk about clarity of story. Let's talk about, like, I'm a little bit confused. I think there's kind of two competing storylines here. Like, let's get down to what this is about. There was an existing writing writer on the project and he and I worked together on that and tackling that rewrite. So I think bringing the writing component is huge because especially doing it for free. I mean, it's like, I, I'm willing to like rewrite this with the writer and like, and then it was being able to speak to how are you going to execute like a, a, a film that reads like it has a ton of visual effects, which it we did have a lot and at this price. And so just being able to instill confidence, I think those are the big the two biggest things. And especially like reading reading the room and going like, what are these people really worried about? You know, and where can I like ease the the concern? So So you talked a little bit about your reps and like how, you know, some of this early stuff was, you know, helpful helped by them, but can you talk about how you landed your reps in the first place? Like, what was that process? Yeah. Like, how did you even like come to pitch them, you know, with your spec? Like, talk to us through that whole thing. Absolutely. So I think, I mean, I'll just revisit the thing of like, everybody comes at this from their different route. Like, I actually didn't go to formal film school. So it's like, you know, we all come through it wherever. But for me, I was coming at it from the artist perspective, the storyboard, the art directing, I had gone to interior design architecture school. So I was working in art departments, you know, I was PAing on big movies in New York before I started art directing on smaller movies. And, you know, we're making my way through that world and then moving to LA eventually. I think one of my big, it, well, so that combined with like luck striking at the right time. I mean, we can't like discount how much you need that to work out in your favor. And I got really lucky in New York. I was I was working as an art PA on things like Men in Black 3. And there was a show on HBO called Bored to Death. And I was art PA. And I was I was feverishly like shooting shorts and anything I could get my hands on. I was like talking to all the other PAs and we were making stuff all the time. And I was storyboarding like crazy. You know, I would just draw like music video ideas if I heard a song or whatever. And I, I came across, there was a Google group ad for a storyboard artist for an established director, but on a low budget feature. So I submitted storyboards I had drawn for myself and my own projects. And I got the call and they said, hey, the director looked at him. He wants to hire you. Can you start Monday? Well, it was Scott Derrickson and it was Sinister One and it was Blumhouse. Wow. And they were shooting out in Long Island. So like talk about just a lucky break. I mean, you know, in terms of, falling into the lap of somebody who's legitimate and great and wonderful. And Scott and I hit it off, you know, really well. I ended up doing, I think, three to four weeks of storyboarding. And then I just kind of stayed on to help production, you know, as like a PA and helping the art department where I could. But I got to meet like a lot of the Blumhouse people too, in that experience. And I got asked if I wanted to come out the following, so that was fall of 2011. So I came out the next year, 2012, and I worked on the first Purge movie. I did storyboards there as well. And I got to know 
that production designer, her name's Mel. She's amazing. I art directed for her after that because we just struck up a chat and she's like, oh, you can draft and you can do all this. So come work, you know, if you in between your storyboarding and your directing and your writing, come, you know. So I say all of this because it's like I ended up working with really great people. I got to work on big projects at a small level and then I got to work kind of work my way up and have, take on more responsibility. But eventually what happened, especially with the Blumhouse relationship is I was writing and I was writing and I was taking classes and I was, you know, collecting like fellow writers. We would read each other's stuff and I was shooting little music videos and all kinds of stuff, fashion videos. At a certain point, I, I had the script that I had mentioned earlier, Belay, I spent a year writing that. And I was like, I need to make a really good, powerful spec like that hopefully can get me signed. And what I did was I reached out to Scott. I mean, at that point, Scott Derrickson, at that point, I had known him for roughly five or six years. So I mean, just talking about how like you build a relationship before, you know, and really like work with someone. And then you at some point ask, hey, can you read me? Or hey, can you help me? And what happened was he had read the script and really liked it. And I already had worked a lot with Cooper at Samuelson, who I mentioned earlier, but Scott and Cooper together were like, okay, maybe we can get her a manager or something. And that's how it happened. So so Cooper reached out to Kaylee Marsh thinking we'd be a good fit. And he was right. And so Kaylee at that point had her own management company and had the blood list that she operated within that. So I signed with her. And then it was about a year later that she went over to Burlstein. So then she worked with them. And I, so it was like, you know, it's, it's a combination of like time and hard work and luck at certain points and like, you know, the grind of it all. So not to take us even further back, but <laughs> I, you know, when I do a storyboard, which they're horrible, by the way, let's just acknowledge that at the top. It's like, you know, it's, it's your worst nightmare of what a storyboard is. And I do it as like homework. I do it because I feel like I have to, right? So I could give that to my DP so that she has a sense of of, of what we're going to be doing on set. Can you say like how, you, in what capacity you're being hired? Is it for action sequences? Is it to storyboard the entire movie? Like what is your specialty? And then is it your, are you using, you know, a stylist? Like, are you doing it on paper? What what are you doing exactly? Yeah, absolutely. So I started on paper. Now I, I started on paper, I moved to Wacom tablet, and now I do iPad Pro. And it's so funny because it really runs the gamut. You know, I, I try to, I feel like my role as, I feel, it's funny because we all wear so many hats in this industry. It's like, you think, oh, I'm a director, but it's like, no, but I'm also like an editor or I'm also a writer. I'm like, and when you, when you're hired on and brought on to be that, like, I always think of, you know, what, what can I do to help this director make the best movie possible? So I try to be really flexible. And sometimes like I'll, I did a lot. I worked a lot with David Gelb. So he he did, if you ever saw Euro Dreams of Sushi, he does a lot of food commercials. He does a lot of stuff with like Chipotle and all, you know, Burger King and stuff. But I would storyboard a lot for him in the commercial space, which is really different. You know, it's more kind of finished and shaded and and they're showing clients and they want people, you know, they want to look a little bit more finished. And so that's kind of one, one approach. I also know David's shooting style because we worked together so long. So I could, you know, put that on like whether it's racking focus or those kinds of things. You just kind of learn that working with somebody. But a lot of times it starts out with just, uh, you know, if it's someone new that I haven't worked with before, it's like a conversation about their process. Like, what do they need? Scott Derrickson likes to have the whole movie storyboard as much of it as possible. Even stuff that's like feet walking down a hallway. It's just another way for him to kind of double check and make sure he gets what he needs. But at the same time, he's not like necessarily shooting the angle of the boards. It might just be a reminder to shoot the feet. It doesn't necessarily have to be from that angle that I've drawn. So it really it really just depends. I've had other people that, you know, because of budget time or just their personal opinion, it's like they'll bring me in just to do that visual effects sequence, you know, just to do that stunt sequence to make sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page about 
what needs to happen because it does save time and, and, you know, keep things moving. I think to have all that worked out ahead of time and to know what you're, you know, what you're doing and storyboarding is definitely a great tool for that. So yeah, it just really depends. I try to be super flexible about, you know, my approach. I've done really colorful finished stuff. I've done chicken, virtual chicken scratch, just trying to get through, you know, sort of the ideas to kind of brainstorm. Can, can you just talk about like your process storyboarding? Like, let's say on like a big movie, like Dr. Strange, like, are you one of like a many storyboard artists working on different sections? Like, like what are you given before you start drawing? Like, are you just sitting down with the director and like actually hearing what he has to say and like sketching based on that? Do you have notes? Like, how does it all work? Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll say first that like Scott and I had worked together on two of his other movies, Sinister and then Delivers from You Vote Sony. And I, I understood his personal process. So there, there was a bit of a shorthand there. And I'll say this too, like what I'm about to say isn't necessarily applicable to all Marvel movies. It's really just more about process with Scott, I think. But yeah, with him and with how Marvel also like the rapid pace with which they edit and like reshoot in post, I got brought on on the reshoot like of it. They had shot in London, so they were doing pre-production there. And I was not part of that. But on the, the post end of it, he had called me up and he said, can you come for a couple of weeks? And so, and what I would do is I sat outside of his office, you know, across from his assistant and we shared like a desk space. And for that particular situation, they were just really trying to figure out what was working, what wasn't, what they were going to go reshoot before they went and did that. So we looked at, like in this particular case, I think if, I think my, my, what I think happens on those movies is if you are in London on that principal photography prep, there's like at least three, four, five, six people they are given sections, you know, those conversations are more organized. With this one, it was like kind of rapid fire ideas of, you know, how to fix things or different ideas about character introductions. I know they were playing around with like how to introduce antagonists and do they really want this and that? And like, should there be a fight sequence here? Let's just test it out. So it was really fast. And, and you know, I would get there in the morning. I would meet with Scott first thing. He would go into meetings. I would draw at a feverish pace. I would hand it over to the previs department. They would they would be doing their own previs, but they'd plug in the storyboards along with that. So it'd be really kind of a rough process. That would get handed over to the editor, Kevin Feige, Louis Despinoza, Victoria Alcelon, and Scott would go into a room with the editor, look at it all for a couple hours wow. in the early afternoon. Scott would come out of that meeting, come over to me and go, okay, so now we're doing these three scenes and then we do it all over again. I'd work for another couple hours and then do it all again the next day. So, and then they finally got down to like, okay, we're going to reshoot three, these th three scenes or we're adding this or getting rid of this. And now we know we, we have three weeks to go do it before we have to you know, deliver the movie basically. So, wow. yeah. <laughs> I'd like to hear about how you use storyboards as a director when you're working with your DP and just what that process is like. I know some DPs, like to shot list themselves and some like to do that. I mean, I'd just be curious on the Mad Hatter if you want to talk about it or whatever project, the creative process of working with your cinematographer. Yeah. So, I mean, first I'll start with storyboards first and then talk about like the greater process. But this movie had psychological sequences. Like I had the most confusing one that I knew would be most difficult to explain or communicate, you know, as a director to crew and actors was one where an actor comes into the hallway, looks right and left, it goes back in his room. And when he turns around, he's in complete blackness and he's reaching and then he like hits a black surface. And then he's like, so it's just this like infinity room that then starts to like box him in. And so that was a sequence I knew immediately I would need the storyboard and I did. And I could then share that with everybody. And we figured out, okay, we can hang, you know, we can take our ballroom and hang up black curtains and be able to shoot, you know, we need a ladder and all these kind of things. So I did really simple storyboards where I was just, I was drawing like white on blacks because it was a black room, but I was able to just kind of 
almost like chalk on a blackboard, like map out where, where the actor would be and like what we would need from everybody. And I actually, for the project with Sam Raimi, I, I did storyboard the whole thing because we didn't have a lot of time. You know, it was kind of a TV shooting pace, TV show shooting pace. And I had three days of production time. So I went ahead and just storyboarded it. And this was like my dream list. And I, I got most of it, I think, because of that. So, and it's nice too, because, you know, at least you can communicate. Like my DP on that one, great guy named Tony. He, you know, we, we at least could communicate like, this is the thought. And here's the story. I mean, this is one of the things I learned from storyboarding is like, what is this, what is whatever kind of visual thing you're doing, however cool or impressive or whatever it is, like, what is the story being told in that moment? And so when you're on set, and you have to pivot, it's like, well, what's the most important thing about this? If it's a scare, you know, is it that the camera comes up and sees reveals the thing? Or is it if it's comedic moment? Is it like how someone walks into frame? It's like, really understanding why you're choosing the composition and everything that you're doing in the blocking, um, and how the camera relates to that so that and I think storyboarding helps you with that. But it's also a way to communicate and get get those ideas with your DP like on the same page so that if you have to pivot because that happened on that show, I was like, we don't have time to do like the four setups. So we came up with just one setup that we got the same effect. Like, it was really cool a moment of gelling of minds, but it was only because he had seen the storyboards and went like, okay, I know what you're trying to do. It's a scare, you know, with the camera coming up from the bed. So anyway, that, that was like a very useful moment of storyboards working. And then yeah, as far as collaboration with the DP, I mean, I think the it's, you know, it starts with, I always do like lookbooks and things like that mood board kind of stuff and really try to like show what what is the feel of this this world so i kind of try to start big and 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 with like whether that's the color the lensing kind of get a sense of what i'm trying to do with mad hatter i had always thought of it as a drama like a period drama but a horror movie and i thought like that that's something i think suits this and it'd be really cool especially when i saw the mansion that was part of the package like you know this is where we're shooting so make it work so i i was using like atonement as a reference i was like atonement but a horror movie you know and so you know i had mentioned helena hutchins shot mad hatter and she I, it was like our first conversation, you know, she was like, you had me at atonement, you know, like, I'm here for it. I got some great, you know, like anamorphic lenses in mind. So, so we just started talking on the phone. And then she actually had me come over and meet her. There was like the Panasonic weekend, you know, the, it's, it's around the time of like, oh, you know, they do the whole thing that they, they, it's a Panasonic, you know, they do the whole camera convention and everything every year. About in the spring. A, 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 yeah, NAB maybe. Where like yeah or Cine Cine some Cine gear uh, Cine gear Cine gear yeah that there's yeah. two of them they're they're really close together <laughs> that's what it was and so I went and met her there that's actually the first time I met her in person and we we you know we had a nice simpatico and gelled and spent the day walking around and kind of like testing each other out see like you know not not testing but just seeing if we we wanted to do this together if there was like an interest in the chemistry and it, you know we knew it would be tough because we didn't have a lot of money we didn't have you know we were going to be going to Florida. And the thing that was amazing about Helena, I mean, she was such a networker. And like, she knew so many people she was she was so good at like, you know, seeking out network and opportunity and all this. And, you know, we ended up she had a camera we shot on Anari, but she was able to just, you know, she'd get on the phone and just like work deals and get people to give her stuff and like bend over backwards for her. I mean, we were walking around that whole Cinebure conference and like every other person, you know, was like, oh, Helena, Helena, you know, it's like, or she would, she's like, you're from Kodak and just like scream at, you know, and they'd be like, yeah, it's like, 
She just would have memorize people's like CVs and stuff and know wow. where they were going and what their what project they just came off. Like she was very up, uh, like so passionate about the business as well as, you know, the craft. And, and yeah, she was, she was a blast. We ended up moving down there for a month for prep because we didn't have a ton of money. One thing that they gave us was a lot of prep time, which, you know, was kind of part of the negotiation. So my, as my best friend puts it, she's like, you tricked me into coming down there. as a But she, she's a 44 prop master, my friend, Annie. And so I said, Annie, I need you to do me a favor come to this low budget movie with me <laughs> non-union like and she's like of course and so annie and helena and i lived together in an airbnb for about a month doing prep and you know that was like such a unique process because you don't always really i mean that's kind of a rarity i mean it's like you might be on location and you might have those kind of like intimate quarters where you're planning all this stuff but yeah we were like living together and we filled the walls with you know inspiration and we would watch you know movies and talk about things and cook together and do all of that stuff. And yeah, for us, it was a lot. I mean, obviously, there's just like the logistic parts of it. I was I had like, it was all hands on deck. I mean, I was like, I had my hands in casting. And I had, you know, it's like, you're just kind of doing everything. You're like juggling the, the balls and seeing, you know, what you need to get any given day, I think on like an indie low budget kind of world. So yeah, it was like very intense. And then and I think, you know, it's just speaking about her, her as a person. It's like, I saw this, this like passion and she was just had this huge, I mean, you can see the photos of her. She's huge presence, this huge smile, this aura about her. She was so kind and thoughtful. And like what I was describing earlier as a storyboard artist, it's like, you want to come and like help a director do their thing. I mean, that's why you're there is to support them. And she, I felt so supported by her and, you know, I remember she said, she's like, if anything happens, I walk with you. I mean, she was just like, you know, very loyal, uh-huh. very like, but she, I, and then I remember getting on set and you saw like, you saw like the Ukrainian <laughs> where she, where she was just like very focused and very, and everyone would kind of just like whip their head when Helena stood up. Cause she was just like very in control, very focused, very specific. And, and it was so comforting to me as a first time director. Cause even though I'd been in the business a long time and I had directed a lot of short form, it was like, okay, now you're, now you're in this thing that's like a huge thing to shoulder. It's like, you feel the pain of each day and how it go, folds into the next. And we're starting to wonder, did do you need to fix something or address something that you shot last? It's like all that kind of compiling that happens and the stress of it and the time and the money and the, and it's like, I, I always felt like I had like I, this, this just like very, very like focus and just, she was just so strong and kind of like together, you know? And like any moment I just was like, I need, can you just help me come up with something? I have to talk to an actor. I have to do this. It's like, I could all, you could trust her, you know, it's just like really cool. And she shot the most amazing. I mean, it's beautiful. It's like, it's beautifully lit. And, and I picked her out. It was funny that I mean, I picked her out of like five DPs. I was sent links to their reels. And I was like, this person stands out. I want to talk to her. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, she was, she was amazing. I mean, you, we would go shoot in the, cause we were shooting in the woods behind the mansion and we'd be coming back up the lawn and she'd go, Oh, you know, that scene that we shot four days ago where they're going out, let's just grab this right here because you could do, you know, it's like, she just was always wow. like wheels turning, just, you know, like she would, she got like extra toys and stuff and she would be like, okay, I don't, you know, you don't have to do it, but we could do this so that, you know, just like, just so, and so it was really seeing her be so like feeling her kindness and feeling her passion and joy. And then seeing this like very just in control, it was like two different sides of her personality that were like so comforting, you know, in these different environments so but yeah that was a unique collaboration for sure i mean you talked about it a little bit just now but like can you pinpoint like what it was like when you had your five dps that you were sent what was it about helena's reel that made you like say oh i this is the person this is the front runner was it just the reel 
was it certain movies she had worked on? Like, what was it that made you think that that's the person I want to shoot my first feature? It was her lighting was so exquisite. And even without, so Serge is incredible. Serge was the gaffer on my movie too. He was on Rust, unfortunately, as well. But he, he was, they were like, they were, you know, they were like so close and he would, he, they were connected in the brain. Like she would, she, they would be speaking Ukrainian to each other and, you know, the rest of us would be like, what's going on? But, you know, she would, she, they would look across the room. Like I'd be, I'd be doing like a rehearsal for everybody, you know, for, for all the, you know, department heads to watch. And it's like, you could just see them, him look at her and her, him nod, you know, like uh, she'd nod and he'd go, okay. Yeah. And it's like, so I think we, I think her, her skill and her ability to work with her crew and really fight, cause we did have to fight to bring these people on cause they had to come and be put up in Florida, you know? And so like, but her ability, you know, and, and, I, and I even saw her really be able to like quickly train and work with people that were locals as well. You know, she was good at that as, as well, but yeah, I think I think her lighting was just exquisite. I think that's really what I, I remember. I remember a couple of films that they were from AFI films and that she had shot uh, when she went to school there. And I I remember one of them was like black and white, and it was just like exquisite. I mean, the it was so stark and like expressionistic. I, it was. And I just thought, God, this is like pretty ballsy and cool. And then you would see other examples of things that were kind of more just like sophisticated, but she really got the look. I think that was something I was, you know, you pitch an idea and you give references and everything. And then you come up, you show up on set and you hope that that communication worked, you know? And I remember seeing dailies and it was like, oh my God, she nailed it. You know, it's like, and she had a real eye for color. Like when we got into the the color grade in post and I would sit with her as much as I could, but you know, she was like, she would be like 2% too much magenta, you know, like she was so, <laughs> she just had a real eye for color and light and her compositions were great, you know, but I would say her lighting was just like so incredible. So it stood out to me in her work. As I said to you before we started recording, it's like this part could be a two hour show yeah (laughs) I want to just ask you questions but I'm I'm actually curbing myself because I'm curious you know I know we don't have a ton of time left but I'm curious about the creative experience of working with Blumhouse in that were they I know there's a lot you can't say but were they hands off did they give a lot of notes were they there every second like how intrusive or how supportive did you find the experience in working with a company like them so actually I they did not produce Mad Hatter oh my god why do I just assume no. that I just assume no, that because totally- of all of the like levels of support <laughs> yeah, they provided yeah. Yes. Well, and that was how I, it was through Cooper at Blumhouse that I got my manager who, yeah, I love, I, I had a great time working with Blum. I worked with them a lot as a storyboard artist. And so I have, I, you know, a great experience with them. The producers, so I can speak though to like the indie producers. It's tough. You know, I'll say like in a film this size, you know, it, it's of course it always comes down to like, do you have the finances, the funds? Like, how do you figure out how to spend that money? Because you only have so much. And so I feel like we pulled off some incredible things. Like the film opens with a, a big gala ball that takes place in the late 1800s. And then the whole ballroom burns down, you know, the middle of the party. So it's like figuring out how to like make this feel full and rich and sexy and all of this with like 28 extras. That's all we could afford, you know, for these period costumes and stuff. And so, yeah, how, I mean, I, we had, the financier was super support. He, he financed a lot of, his name's Eli and he finances a lot of indie film and, 
he actually has a distribution company in South America. So he is just a film lover and, and like a cinephile himself. And so he loves being a part of film and this is his way of doing it, you know, and, and he actually came and, and was on set a lot for our production, which wasn't always the case with other things he would invest in. So it was nice having, you know, him around and he was really, he was like, he gave me like a lot of space to, to just kind of like go with it. Like he, he really did trust me. And we actually had Another producer who stepped in at a certain point who was really incredible. He's a producer director named uh, Christian Vogler. And he he came in to really kind of like help at a time when we were trying to figure out some scheduling stuff. We were like our schedule was all around, but also just communication was kind of breaking down in some areas with like, because, you, you know, again, on an indie film, it's like we had so many balls in the air and trying to like some of these sets were really ambitious and the timing of it and like having having stunts and underwater and all of this. And so he was absolutely integral to like producing, to keeping the train on the tracks with all of that, the communication involved in that and the planning involved in that, the scheduling, the just like, you know, getting it done. So between, you know, th those two were just like lifesavers. You know, I was, I was really happy to have Christian, you know, he was available to come in. He had worked with this investor before. So he was someone who, who stepped in kind of last minute to, to help out. So, so you can have this amazing, like, you know, thing happen all at once where you, you got, you made your first feature and then you you did this show with Sam Raimi and now, you know, and then, then you're off to the races. So I just want to kind of hear about like what, like, has, has there been a big change in your career since you directed these things? Like, have you noticed a shift? Like, has anything changed or is it kind of just like now it's back to the same old, same old? So I would say that now there is a thing in there called the pandemic. <laughs> I completely threw a wrench in everything in a <laughs> right, way. Right? Exactly. Because we made, we, we shot the movie in 2019 and then 2020 was post, but even then it's like, there was a weird momentum issue of just kind of like getting stuff done. And I'll say creatively on the creative side first and then the business side on the creative side, it's absolutely made me a way better writer. And when I do take the, you know, director's chair again, whenever that happens, like I know those experiences will make me a way better director they how can they not you know i think to me one of the things that i was most pleasantly surprised with which you know saying this out loud is like well duh but like going through posts on a feature film and just realizing like how do you take all of this footage and really shape it because you know the whole thing about you write a film, you know, on paper, you write it in production. Now you're writing it again in post. It's like, it's so true. And you you realize like where dead space is and where, you know, story momentum isn't working. And you're like, you can't just cut it faster. It's like, you actually just forgot to think about that. And like, and I think all of these kinds of lessons of, of being in post on a feature has made me such a better writer because I immediately went back and just started like doing a passes on my feature specs and was like, okay, you know, I can cut here and trim here. And oh, I should actually like make these transitions more effective. And like, so I think creatively, it's really helped me. It's elevated my writing. And that's the thing I've noticed right away, you know, on the business side of things. Yeah, I, it's been tricky, to be honest with you. I think I think breaking in as a director in general, like, what does that mean? Well, usually it's like you, you get sent out for TV and stuff so hard to break into. I mean, like, it's so tough to, to, to direct episodic TV. And I've met on I've had meetings, some of those meetings have been generated from just old contacts that knew me, you know, people who are now either show running or executive producing TV shows that I knew, like 10 years ago, are like, Oh, yeah, you made a movie, you should meet with the showrunner friend that's like, always happy to meet new talent, whatever. It's like, I've had a lot of those that have actually come up more than even just stuff through my reps. And 
I, I have been sent a couple, you know, some stuff that's similar. So I've been sent a couple scripts that are in the same kind of budget range and same genre. A couple that I've passed on. There was one I was really interested in that I think got pushed. Not sure, you know, there's some a couple things fell through the cracks. I think with COVID and post COVID stuff like 2021. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said it isn't difficult and tough. And I continue to write for myself, and I've been paid now to write as well, like in the feature space. So that's been good. It's you know kept my lights on and also kept me like excited about something getting made um whether i direct that or not like it's not i don't know yet but hopefully maybe and yeah you know it's it's but in terms of having like does mad hatter directly like get me other jobs i think it's definitely got me a lot of meetings it's got me potential jobs that then maybe those movies kind of fell off or they got postponed or you know it's like so yeah i think it's definitely been helpful but maybe not like the most extreme uptick of helpful let's do a rapid fire round because we only have a couple minutes left of our final questions. So these are the weirdo actor stereotype questions we ask. <laughs> okay. Uh, this could refer to your first feature, your first short, but what's the first film you made? How do, you, how do you feel about it now? Let's talk Mad Hatter. And I'm so proud of it. I'm so glad I did it. There's so much I would do differently, but I felt like, you know, it did feel like boot camp, and I'm really proud of what we pulled off. What's the best feeling can you advise that you've ever received? Scott Derrickson told me. <laughs> He said, he said, it's okay to get upset, you know, when you're talking to executives, when you're, you know, once your movie's greenlit, right? Assuming when you're talking to executives, when you're talking to producers, uh, the studio, it's okay to get upset about things that are directly related to the movie you sold because you sold them a movie and you care about making this movie the best possible movie that removes your ego. It removes, you know, any kind of personal attachment to it. And he said, if you can keep all of your arguments, all of the, anything they're going to want to change, all of that, if you could just keep it, take it right back to like the movie you sold them, it's going to be your best bet to get the best movie made possible. And I found that to be useful. You know, if I just stick to the thing I'm passionate about and the thing that you bought, it's like, it, it, it's it's effective. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received? I don't think this is, <laughs> I don't know if I, I don't, I'd have to think harder maybe about worst. I think that one thing I will say is when, when you do get reps, and I don't think, by the way, this is like a malicious thing. But when you do get reps, a lot of times, you know, they're going to send you out on general, they're going to if you're a writer, they're going to send out your specs, they're going to try to get you meetings for, you know, open writing assignments or staffing or whatever. Same for directing. You know, if you have a real director's reel, they're going to send it out. I think that's all good stuff. I think it's great to meet the town. Of course, you want to. I do think they can chew up a lot of time. And if you're, and you can kind of like go through all of the, they call it the water bottle tour, where you like they give you water every meeting you go to, right? It's like you can, you can spend months and then look back and go, oh my God, like I haven't written anything in six months or I haven't like made another short or shot anything because I was kind of just assuming one of these meetings, they were going to be like, oh, you're brilliant. Let me, <laughs> let me, let me hire you right now to like do this thing and pay you a bunch of money. And I think that that's just something to be cognizant of, you know, like don't, don't not do those things, but also just like keep writing and keep doing stuff you want to do because my biggest successes so far are just passion like really i would say like passion projects, things i wanted to write or things I, stories i wanted to tell so you know keep going back to that ryan spindell said something very similar from the mortuary oh, ryan yeah. <laughs> oh yeah it's kind of the calvary's never coming thing too from the diplos speech right it you know yeah i used to have like big lofty like oh i want to 
direct this or like, you know, have multiple shows that I'm show running on the air and like I, you know, all these <laughs> kinds of things. And like, yeah, Ryan Murphy, but not, you know, like a different thing, you know, but I, I think for me, it's I've kind of cooled off on some of those like just extreme things and really just tried to get back to like why I started doing this in the first place. I think this past year and a half has been a, a big example of that for me. It's just like I ended up writing a, a political satire spec with a friend of mine that's now in development at Hyper Objects, which was like totally crazy, totally out of like the area I'm used to working in. But like, it, well, if that movie gets made, amazing. You know, it's like, so I think listening to yourself is just so important and keep going back to that. So if you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? You know, what I honestly do is I think I think I would have like tried to embrace like a more kind of a part time job or something just to kind of ease some of the financial burden of like waiting in between projects, you know, and like, I, it took I, I, at different times I had had like part time, you know, jobs or full time jobs waiting for stuff. And, and so I think like, if you can, if you can eliminate the, the, fears and frustrations around like paying rent and finances and stuff like as much as you can, you know, while still being able to write and, and direct and make your projects like that's the best position you can put yourself in and not be stressing over that while trying to also be creative. And last question is making movies hard. Yes, <laughs> but also really fun. <laughs> and there's no better job. I mean, what else are we going to do? Like playing the circus or something, I guess. <laughs> but <laughs> Alric, what do you remember about our chat with Kate? Oh, wow. Kate was Kate was wonderful. I loved hearing about her journey to making her movie. And I mean, when I met her at Austin Film Festival, like, I think the thing that struck me the most out of our conversation was that, like, she got hired to direct her first feature. Like, I don't think I'd ever really met anyone who got hired to direct their first feature. Yeah. And I just thought that was extremely impressive. And then when I found out about her storyboard stuff and that she's a storyboard artist, I, I really want, like, we, we haven't really had a storyboard artist on before maybe a couple people who like did some of that work but like never anyone who like that was their main thing you know we had a previous artist on once which was really fun hmm. but yeah but anyways this was a really really fun conversation yeah i just loved hearing about how it all worked for her like the the process to getting her her reps you know the process of this movie coming around and how quickly she had to like get ready to make it you know, what happened with her career afterwards and everything. I just thought, I thought it was all very fascinating. But what about you? What did you remember about talking with Kate? Very similar to you, but I think I was just filled with envy. I was like, oh, <laughs> I wish I had that skill set. Like, I, I was... I don't I didn't really know what storyboard artists do. It always was something I couldn't afford on a production. And when she described it, I was like, that's directing. You're based like every time she's storyboard doing a storyboard storyboard design, she she's directing that. Like she's deciding what the frame looks like. She's deciding what the lighting looks like, what color palette. I mean, like, it made me think that it's such a wonderful field to develop creative instincts as a director. So I was jealous of her skill set. And I was also just like totally seeing a direct line from her background and her training to being on set and making movies. So she was really cool. And something we should note, which I don't even know if is so clear from the interview, is that Helena Hutchins shot her feature. And oh, yeah. I don't know. I really don't know if we explicitly said her name, but it should be. I think she might have mentioned it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't really feel comfortable asking tons of questions about that because... Yeah. 
I, I didn't, I didn't want to like make it about, you know, like anything to do with rust. Like, cause this is, yeah. this was Kate's story and, and Kate's thing. Although Kate wanted to talk about Helena a lot because I, she obviously had a really amazing time working with her and it was a really special relationship that they had, which is beautiful to hear, you know? But yeah, I kind of, I feel like, I, I don't know. Like I have this, like when these things happen, when like we, there's guests that have a connection to something that's super topical or big or whatever that like you'd imagine the, the, the journalists like digging in and be like, well, did you see anything coming with Helena? What do you know about the rust? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I want to go so far away from like that kind of reaction to those things that I just tend not to even ask questions about it at all, you know, because I'm just like, I don't want to go there. Maybe like them. Yeah. And I think there's like definitely a middle ground where you could like, you could ask a question about, about Helena or your the relationship or whatever that would be appropriate and like an interesting thing. But like, I just, I get so nervous to be like that journalist that I just don't go there, you know? Yeah. And I think that's okay. You know, I think that's totally fine. And I completely understand. And I think I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. But secretly, I only, I, because before we did the show, like before we did the interview, she started talking about her and you could just see the emotion in her face and you just, it seemed like yeah. fertile ground. But yeah, there's respect. There's respect in timing. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and, and really like, you know, we had Kate on the show because we want to talk to Kate about all her amazing things that she does and all her experience. And so I felt it was prudent to keep it on that topic, you know, and not make it about, you know, the, you know, this other thing. So good job, Liz. Job well done. Okay. I am very excited to play this week's round of the game. (laughs) So for those who don't know, the game is a game, obviously that Eric Toms, our producer created where we basically ask each other like an independent film quandary or challenge or scenario that needs a needs a solve basically like something that's going on on a fictitious movie set and you're the director and you got to figure out like what do you do in this situation because as everyone knows on indie sets there's always going to be problems nothing ever goes exactly to plan and so you need to know how to adjust and react and so this is a kind of a fun game that we play where we figure out like what we would do in these different situations. So as always, Liz has not seen this question in advance. Eric just sent it to me only. I've not even read over through the whole thing. I just made sure I received it and that it was a new question. And uh, here we go. I'm going to read it. Uh, this question comes to us from our lovely, lovely listener, Mr. Colin Stryker, who has Colin given Stryker! us at least like three or four of these questions now, which is amazing. So Colin, keep it up, man. I love it. I love that we're getting this listener interaction with this segment. So here it goes. You're producing and directing a low budget feature with a distinctive look and a strong feminist message. From the get-go, it has been vital to you to assemble a diverse crew. But in the end, for a variety of reasons, you ended up with a crew that skewed more male than you would have liked. Worse, you tried to hire a good friend of yours, a solid but still up-and-coming female DP. Unfortunately, she was unavailable for the project. Then, a prominent A-list male cinematographer approached you wanting to DP the film. His skills and style were a perfect match for the look uh, you want for the film. Not to mention the prestige, and you couldn't turn him down. But then, you're negotiating the final paperwork for his contract when your friend reaches out and says she's available after all. Do you A. Stick with an A-list male DP. Drop the A-list DP in favor of your female friend. Hire the A-list DP, but keep on your friend as a camera op or make her the DP for the B unit or put her in some other position or other. What do you do, director? What do you do? (laughs) 
I think, Colin, I don't know if any of all of the context is needed for this question, but I like the kind of like (laughs) pat on the back of like trying to bring on diversity. I think it really is dependent on the conversations you have with each DP, right? If this A-list DP who happens to identify as male has the time for a real robust prep with you, can come to all location scouts. I think a lot of people in higher profile who are used to higher profile projects look to lower budget projects as like favors and they don't really put the time in that an indie production needs and development and pre-production at scouts at meetings at storyboarding at shot listing so like for me this is entirely dependent on which dp is committed and available for prep and flexible with their calendar so again like If that A-list DP is fitting us into a schedule and if we go, you know, if we have to do a pickup day right afterwards and they have to fly off to France or something, that's a barrier for us. Well, let's just assume based based on the question that because they wanted to work with you, this this A-list DP. So let's just assume that they're 100% available. They're going to be involved as much as you need them to be. They'll be all the pre-pro, all the scouts, everything. And then equally true that the other DP, the female DP, is also equally available and interested and able to be a part of everything. So let's just make them equal. Then I would go with the A-list DP if they're going with, yeah, they would. If they're, if the same, same rate, if I'm not paying more for them, if they're flexible, if they're willing to commit the time, yeah, they're the dude. That doesn't mean dudes aren't. You know, Wait, so you too. say, sorry, Julia Swain, you're not, a, you, you know, I'm not well, going to Well, she bailed on me first. Yeah, she, but then she was like, no, no, wait, but I, I can't, I can do it actually. Like, right, right before you she, send the contract. Yeah. Too late, huh? Too late, too I think bad, it's too so late, sad. And I do think oh, we, wow. there is a world for me that I've noticed that like high profile editors, high profile DPs, high profile production designers can help you with press they can help you with and not necessarily distribution but i mean you and i know we get pitched by a publicist that just represents editors and dps like there are costume designers and costume designers there's like a whole world of support system for higher profile craftspeople that can benefit your film in terms of amplifying it and so if this Eight, it's it's not about necessarily their experience. It's like, can they help the film achieve a larger profile? And yeah, I'm I'm really about loyalty. And if someone bails on me, it's not that I want to punish them. It's just that I'm not going to trust them a second time. So if that first EP oh, says... Oh, well, no, no. So she, it's not like she signed on and said no. It was that she wasn't available from the beginning. Right. You know, okay. So it's not like they right. turned. It's not like she turned you down or or whatever. It was. Well, just why like, didn't oh, I arrange the available. dates to count? Uh, see again. Like I would arrange nah. my dates <laughs> to cater to the the crew people yeah. that I wanted. No, but I I feel like you're answering something different. But I mean, you're going to answer it a different way. But yeah, my perspective is I want to do what's best for the film, and it sounds like this DP may help the film. And I do think that as long as you make an effort in outreach to bring people of different backgrounds, race, cultures onto your production, ultimately you can't control whether they are, they are available or not. It, the important thing is you do the outreach. So yeah. good job, Colin Stryker, <laughs> for doing the you outreach. Know, 
this is interesting because that's not ex- at all what I expect you to say. Like, I oh. thought you were going to be pro, like, so pro diverse crew, so pro, like, having a female DP for a female story that you would turn down Matthew Liebetique to, like, work with. No, I, I think men Julia could tell Swain. feminist stories, too, just like women could tell <laughs> stories about men. We could all tell stories about each other. But please tell me. I, w- I want to know what you think. Yeah. Well, I was just so rocked by your answer. I haven't really <laughs> thought about my answer. Um, I'm like shocked. So basically my friend Ed Ng, who's been on the show before, before your time, he'd basically kill me if I said anything but A, because in his mind, like he's tried to basically convince me to go after higher level DPs on, on the alternate, on any future project. He's like, you got to go with somebody who's like well-known and done the the thing that you want them to do. Like, you know, got to get like M. Night Shyamalan's DP. Like, you know, he's just like all about that. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm so like, no, like I don't want to work with some strange person, like for the reasons that you stated in the beginning, like who like it would be looking at this as a favor, not mm-hmm. necessarily like as interested about this project and like giving it their all, you know, and like, I have to, I don't even know them. I have to win them over and like, get them to like be down with my vision and everything. It's like, I'd much rather work with a person I know and I've collaborated with before. And that like, I've, I trust and I have the experience with, and I know is going to do a really great job. Like that person is way more attractive to me, you know? But yeah, I mean, given the situation, whew, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think you have to go with the, the, the good DP, even though it would, it would, it would not They're both be both good, a, but the higher profile DP, right? Right. Yeah. But like with the, with the famous, the famous high level fancy pantsy DP who's worked with Michelle Gondry or Steven Spielberg or whoever, you know, like yeah. you got to go with the fancy pantsies, I think, because, you know, it's a low budget movie. Like that's going to be so valuable for you as far as advertising, as far as raising money. If you need more money later, their connections are going to help in a big way. It's just, it's just going to be too good for the movie to turn it down. And I do agree with you about like, you know, men can tell women's stories and everyone else can tell everyone else's stories. It's like, yeah, like, I think that's totally a no. A, a, yeah, I agree with that statement. <laughs> we need to hire more women. We need to hire more people of color. But if you do the outreach, right, to make the attempts to do yeah. those hires and it doesn't work out, you can't, you can't destroy yourself over not making the most perfect crew or not making the most perfect cast. It's going to be self-sabotage. I will say, you know, just as a little throwing the cork of the screw here, if let's say it was Rachel Morrison, who was like my first choice, yeah. you know, female DP, uh, although she's not even DPing anymore, she's only directing, but just, just to use her as an example. And, and then she was the one who came back at the last second and it was like someone who also was famous and had like the clout. Then it would be, well, I'd have to figure it out. But like, obviously you don't want to burn bridges either. You don't want to string people on. So it would definitely be a, a, a tough thing that you'd have to discuss and figure out and, mm. you know, work through. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think I had basically agree with you. I, I would do the same. I thought I was going to be disagreeing with you. I thought I, my <laughs> answer was going to be against your answer, but it sounds like we're in agreement on what needs to be done here. So. We are. And well, two, two notes. One is we didn't talk about like, crew and resources and vendors. And it's like, this could bite us, right? This could bite us in our butts in that this high profile DP maybe can't get low budget rates from vendors or couldn't get crew to work for a certain level. So it's like, as long as financially everything works out, 
uh, you go with this decision. But if everything gets inflated because of this individual, then no, you don't want to go with this DP, even in spite of their profile. But what you said reminded me of a friend of mine where I worked with a male editor on my last short on Witchy. And I interviewed a bunch of women and I really loved them. But I, uh, this male editor came so highly recommended by my mentor, Tom Putnam. And I went to Sam and I said, Sam, you know, I want to hire you. And he's like, I'm so confused. I thought you only work with women. And it's like, well, <laughs> no, I mean, like, no, that's like what people think. People think I only work with women. But really, I just like find the best people and the best people that I found on other projects happen to be women. And this, per- you know, your gender happens to be male on this project and you are the best person. So I just think it's funny, like I have this reputation for being this like uber fem- feminist who only hires women, but like, no, I do work with men. <laughs> it's okay to work with men. <laughs> just, uh, you heard it first, people. Liz says it's okay to work with men. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, guys. Oh, that's funny. We have an another iTunes review to read. Should I go with it? Yeah, yeah let's do it. it. The subject is stay with it. And the the review says, we love the show, the candid interviews and insights from the best hosts, Ulrich and Liz. Keep it up. This podcast is a light in the dark for so many who just need some encouragement to know their story matters and they can, in fact, overcome the obstacles to make a film. Yes, it's hard, but with awesome people in the arena with you, it is possible. Thank you. And this is from Rebecca and James Castleman, who are lovely filmmakers who made a movie called Next to North. And I'm going to pimp it out yet again. Next to North, wonderful movie coming out sometime soon. Thank you, Rebecca and James. Thanks, Rebecca and James. This is really wonderful. Also add, this was a five-star review, another five stars. So just adding to our collection of five-star reviews, which is beautiful. And yeah, this this is really it's a wonderful thing to see. And they just support our Patreon last week. So like they did the twofer. They did the Patreon and then they did the iTunes review. So they're basically getting 10 out of 10 on listener. That's like, you can't really do much better as a listener <laughs> than that. So uh, thank you so much for supporting the show. It's fantastic. So if you want to send us a question, comment, or suggestion, you could do so by emailing podcast at makingmoviesisheart.com and we'll read it on the show just like we read this wonderful iTunes review. If you want to be like James or Rebecca and leave us an iTunes review, you can do that, guess what, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the heck it's called now. Finally, you can check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast. And we are at YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast. I know I'm not so, like, timely with putting episodes on YouTube, but I swear to God, I will get better at that. <laughs> they will all be up there, you know, maybe not by the time you hear this, but this week for sure. Also, don't forget to check out Jambox.io, which is a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome. You can use our code MMIH to get a 20% discount on your yearly subscription today. Thanks so much to Kate Devaney for coming on the show. And a big, big thanks again to Colin, Travis, and Kristen from the Austin Film Festival for including us in the festival and, like, you know, basically getting us in a situation where we were invited to this party where I got to meet Kate in person and then, you know, find her on Instagram and ask her to be on the show, which was wonderful. Thanks, Kate, so much for giving us a shot. Big thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being awesome and for bringing this whole awesome trip together in the first place, which made this whole episode possible. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. The 
International Screenwriters. Sorry, the International Screenwriting Association. Is it screenwriting or screenwriter? Why do I ever know this? Why don't I? I why, it's not even in the blurb, so why even say it? Okay. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.